Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're going to step out of our series Uh, Can I trust my Bible? For just this week, I think that uh, Thanksgiving is something God wants to create in us. It's not just a holiday, it's it's a command, and it's sort of a virtue that God wants to create in us. So I wanted to take this week to just go into a a one-off sermon, and I've entitled our message, Thank You, God. Two psychologists, Dr. Robert A. Emmons and Dr. Michael E. McCullough, have done much of the research on gratitude or thankfulness. In one study, they asked all participants to write a few sentences each week focusing on particular topics. One group wrote about things they were grateful for that had occurred during the week. A second group wrote about daily irritations or things that had displeased them during that week. And a third group wrote about events that had affected them with no emphasis on whether they were positive or negative. So you got the group of people who are asked to be happy, the group of people who are encouraged to be grumpy, And then the group of people who said, write what you want. After 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. Surprisingly, they also exercised more and had fewer visits to doctors than those who focused on sources of aggravation. Another leading researcher in this field, Dr. Martin uh, E.P. Seligman, tested the impact of various assignments given to help the mood of 411 people when their assignment was to write and personally deliver a letter of gratitude or thankfulness to someone who had never been properly thanked for his or her kindness. So somebody did something really good, they were never properly thanked. When people had the opportunity to do that as an assignment, participants immediately exhibited a huge increase in happiness scores. This impact was greater than that from any other assignment with benefits lasting for a month. So when people are just enjoined to give thanks to people who deserve it for something they've done, the people giving thanks have a massive increase in well-being. We do better in life mentally and spiritually and even physically when certain habits like gratitude become a part of our lives. But that's not easy to do, because study after study indicates that the things that we believe should lead to happiness, gratitude, and thankfulness, the things that we actually want in this life often do the exact opposite. And that's because of expectation inflation, which is a huge part of Western society. We become used to so much that it takes so much more to make us happy and thankful. A YouTube segment from Conan O'Brien, late night talk show host, entitled, Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. He had a guest comedian who had been making the rounds, and in it the comedian talked about how he was on a plane that offered in-flight Wi-Fi access to the internet. One of the first planes to do that. But when it broke down in a few minutes, the man sitting next to him swore in disgust. The comedian was amazed, and he said, how quickly the world owes him something that it didn't even exist 10 seconds ago. The comedian then talked about how many of us describe less than perfect airline flights as if it were experiences from a horror film. 
It was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes, and then we get on the plane, they make us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes, and the comedian said, really? But did you fly through the air incredibly, like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Everybody on a plane should be going, wow. You're sitting in a chair in the sky going about 600 miles an hour. And then he mocks a passenger who, trying to push his seat back, complains it doesn't go back far enough. See, this inflation expectation is a huge part of why we have so much and we are not happy or thankful. One of the worst crises in your kitchen could be when the microwave goes down. Because you can't make popcorn in three minutes. Do you know people, if, you're, if you were born before 1990 or 1980, do you know people used to make popcorn on a stove? Where they put it in a pan with some oil and they kind of shake it and some would pop. You'd have a few burnt ones. And before stoves that were electric, people would actually light a fire in sort of a gas slash stove fireplace that would heat their home as well and they would make popcorn over that. And there was a time where people had to work to light fires. That was like back when I was young, before matches. It's why bronze medalists are happier than silver medalists. Because silver medalists, and they've done studies on this, silver medalists get to the podium and all they're thinking about is the person who's a little higher on that platform. I could have been there. I could have been there if only. The bronze medalist is thinking, I'm just lucky to be on the stage right now just about missed. Today I want to look at a story, a familiar story to most of you, and it's a demonstration of spiritual transformation that takes place in a young man. It's not fair to say that the story is all about thankfulness, if you're looking at authorial intent in the text, but thankfulness is certainly a part of it, and it is the story of Joseph, one of the patriarchs. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 45, the, book, uh, the Bible in front of you. It's going to be the first book of the Bible on page 35 and 36, page 35 and 36. We're going to read the first part of this chapter. And this is sort of the culmination of a long and hard experience in his life. So chapter 45 on page 35. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They thought he was dead or in slavery, which was their fault. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to, to, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he who has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You shall, neither, or you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. And you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you've seen and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. And afterward his brothers talked with him. Now that's the culmination of a pretty brutal family journey. We're just going to look at three simple points from Joseph's life, then a few applications. The journey of life seems inconsistent with the God we follow. When that's the case, know that God is still at work. When the journey of life seems inconsistent with the God we follow, in other words, the goodness of God, and life isn't working out that way, know that God is still at work. Now, to give you a little context, the book of Genesis or beginnings has many purposes. In it, you have the story of creation. In it, you have the beginning of the human family. In it, you have the fall of the human family. In other words, sin comes into our experience and it begins to affect us. We're all then born into a sinful world and we have sinful natures. We do wrong things. We have a proclivity towards it. And right after that, there's the first promise of salvation that there would be a savior that would be the seed of the woman. Somebody would come into the human family and undo the damage done by the fall. So the future promise of salvation exists in chapter three. And then in chapter 12 through 15, we see that that future promise of salvation to the world through, uh, will also come through the family of Abraham, who's gonna become the nation of Israel. So then through about chapters 12 through 50, you have Abraham becoming a clan, which is basically going to become a nation. Because by the time the next book of the Bible opens, the book of Exodus, you have a nation of Israel, probably a couple million people. Also in Genesis, as you're going to get this nation that is going to rescue the world, through Israel is going to be a way that God can demonstrate himself to the world. The line of Christ is gonna come through this as well. The Savior is gonna come through this nation. So Abraham's gonna have Isaac, he's gonna have Jacob, he's gonna have Judah. Judah's gonna be the line of Judah, he's in the line of Christ. So you see this line of Christ begin to be, uh, to go back into this patriarchal family. And Joseph's story is in these historical narratives as one of Abraham's descendants. Now Joseph isn't in the line of Christ. But I would suggest without Joseph, you may not have a line of Christ, which is why he's here. It occupies much of Genesis 37 through 50, so many, many chapters. It's one of the biggest Old Testament narratives of somebody's personal life. And it's an amazing piece of history which we're intended to learn lessons from about our own lives. So Joseph was a late addition to a family of 10 boys. Fortunately and unfortunately, he was the favorite. Now, there's not, I mean, parents might have favorites, but you're not supposed to show it. 
And his parents were not terribly wise about that. At a very young age, he knew he was the favorite. Daddy gave him a special little robe of many colors that he got from the local Abercrombie and Fitch. And so Joseph would walk around with his little ABF robe and show it off to his brothers and tell them about how one day they would all be serving him, which is never something you want to do when you're the youngest in the family, even if you're the favorite. Symbolized his prominence. Actually, he wasn't the youngest. He had a little brother beside him. It symbolized his prominence in the family line, this, this robe. And his brothers didn't just dislike him. They hated him. And they hated his little ABF robe. He had a dream one day, and he told his brothers about this dream. He said, each of us boys is like a sheaf of grain, you know, a bundle of of stalks of grain, wheat or barley perhaps. And he said to his brothers, one day all the sheaves of grain were out in the field and my sheaf of grain stood tall and all of your sheaves of grain bowed down to my sheaf of grain. He told them this little story and they were not particularly amused. Then he had another dream. And this time he said, hey guys, I had a dream. It's nighttime. And the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to me. He told his brothers that one too. I think the brothers, or he told his dad, but it got back to daddy. And even dad had concerns about that, you know, narcissism 101. So dad says, so you're telling me, Joseph, that your mother and I, sun and moon, and the brothers, the stars, are all going to bow down to you, really. But what's interesting is the Bible says that dad also never forgot that dream and these visions that his son was having. He might have been incredibly immature with them, but dad didn't forget them. The brothers were moving the family's flocks to Shechem. It's kind of a semi-arid part of the world, and you can't just pasture your sheep in one spot and keep them there, and especially as you got into summer and fall be very difficult, so you had to, from memory, sort of know the places that would continue to have grass, valleys, mountains, places that had water in particular. So dad sent Joseph and his little Abercrombie and Fitch robe to check on them. And they weren't at Shechem anymore, they'd already moved to Dothan, and the older brothers had sort of had enough at this point. And they had sort of determined it was time for the little dreamer to go. So while Joseph is approaching, and they saw him from a long distance off, they start forming a plot. And these brothers have had enough years of this, and this is a pretty crude ancient culture, they decided they're gonna kill him. They think, how can that be? These are brothers. Well, I didn't tell you this, but dad has four wives, and you know Joseph is from the favorite wife, and he's got another little brother, Benjamin, and so there was a lot of There was a lot of favoritism there as well. So these guys didn't necessarily feel like brothers, even though they were brothers. They're all stepbrothers or half-brothers. Their mothers probably had issues with each other as well. So the plot is formed. He's going to be killed. They're going to throw the body in a pit, actually a dry cistern or a dry well. That's the plan. There's a pit nearby. You got the little 
little brother coming in his precious little robe. We're gonna kill him, we're gonna throw him in a pit, we're gonna take that precious little robe, we're gonna dip it in some blood, we're gonna go home and tell dad a bear or a lion killed him. Reuben, the oldest brother, said, we, guys, we really don't wanna do this. I mean, we do, but we don't. Let's just throw him in the pit, and Reuben's plan was that he would come back later after the brothers had moved on with the sheep and he would rescue them. But that's not what happened. They grabbed him, they stripped him of his robe, they threw him in that dry well, they sat down for a meal, and before they left and before Reuben could rescue them, a caravan headed for Egypt with a group of Midianites came by, and Judah made an appeal to the other brothers thwarted Reuben's plan. He said, Judah said, we really don't want our brother's blood on our hands. Let's just sell him. He'll be out of the country. We'll sell him into slavery. We'll never see him again. But at least we won't be guilty of murdering our brother. And in that moment, Joseph became a slave. His robe was dipped in goat's blood and the jealous brothers carried the lie to dad. Joseph was sold. Imagine that. I mean, we hear this story, a lot of us heard it when we were six years old in Sunday school, and it doesn't really sink in that much. We're thinking, oh yeah, of course, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, and we know the end of the story, and everyone lives happily ever after in the end. But think about Joseph's life experience. Joseph, who is given in a high sort of a high level of prominence in the family, this special little robe symbolizes dad's view of his future in the clan. He's gonna take over everything. His brothers will actually have to work for him. That was his future. And in a moment, in an hour or two, on a summer afternoon, he just became a slave in a foreign land in a world with no internet, no Facebook, no hope of ever communicating again with his dad. There was hopelessness. He had no lawyer, he had no rights. The only person who cares is actually being told that he's dead. But there was a glimmer of hope. Soon he lands in a prominent household, a gentleman named Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's personal bodyguard. He lands in that home. He's the one who purchases him. And God's blessing was with Joseph. Those dreams were actually real. They were, though he handled them immaturely, God was telling Joseph he was gonna have a prominent place in kingdom history. And so even though he's in Potiphar's house as a slave, he rose in rank and Potiphar was blessed because of Joseph. Wherever Joseph landed, God's blessing followed him. And so this slave owner sees Joseph prosper. Everything Joseph touches turns to gold, if you will. It was an incredible comeback. He's not free, but he's one of the highest ranking slaves around and Mrs. Potiphar noticed as well. And she made a, a play for him one day. Put on her Chanel number no. five and a little Victoria's Secret outfit. And told Joseph to lie with her. And he refused. In fact, he ran 
But as he ran, she had his cloak, and because she had been rejected and was upset about it, she turned the story around and said he had attacked her sexually. Well, now he's a slave in prison. You think it was hopeless before. Now he's in a foreign land, and he's a slave, and he's a slave in prison. But again, God is with him. And even there, in prison, as a slave, there's this rising glimmer of hope because he didn't get placed in a regular prison. He got placed in a unique prison that was for political prisoners. It was actually the king's prisoner, and Potiphar was an employee of the king or the pharaoh. So he's in this unique prison where he's going to meet political officials who have offended the king. Enemies of the king, if you will. The chief jailer noticed Joseph quite quickly and noticed that he was a gifted leader. And God blessed Joseph in prison. You couldn't keep him down. God's blessing was on him no matter where. And so the chief jailer put Joseph in charge of his own place of incarceration. Imagine that. You go to jail, and very quickly you're promoted to the point where you're running the jail. That's the situation he was in, because God prospered his every move. He was now second in line to the jailer. And in doing that, because he's in this political prison instead of a regular Egyptian prison, he met other political prisoners, which God ultimately used to free him because a couple of those political prisoners had some dreams or visions. And Joseph had this gift of interpreting dreams. There was something about him. It was miraculous. And so he interpreted their dreams for them. And one of them was freed from prison, went back to work for Pharaoh, who remembered. Pharaoh had a dream one day. And now one of the people who had been in prison, who's now working for Pharaoh again, remembered that Joseph, this, this guy who's in prison, has a gift of interpreting dreams. So Joseph is summoned to the king. And the dream that the king has is interpreted. There are going to be seven bountiful years in Egypt. Like Years in agriculture unlike anything they've ever had. They're just going to be incredible. The crop yields are going to be off the charts. But those seven years are going to be followed by seven years of horrible famine. And so Joseph's message to the king as he interprets this dream is you better plan. You need to store up during these fruitful years so that you can take care of your empire during the barren years. And so you need to find a good leader for this. And the Pharaoh hears that story, recognizes its truthfulness, and the man who can interpret the dream miraculously is right in front of him. So in a moment, Joseph is moved from prison to palace. He is put in charge of the 14-year plan to save Egypt. He is now second only to Pharaoh. He was a slave in prison days ago. Now he is second only to Pharaoh because God is with him. He will now feed the whole empire and beyond because other empires are coming for food during this time. In fact, the famine was widespread. 
to the point that daddy, Jacob, sends the boys to buy grain in Egypt. Joseph is second only to the king. Again, the point, when the journey of life seems inconsistent with the God we follow, know that God is still at work. God has been at work in Joseph's life all along. It looked incredibly bleak. He is a slave. He's hated by his brothers. He's in Egypt. He's been in prison. Joseph had every reason to feel completely abandoned by God, just like you would, just like I would, just like you do sometimes, just like I do sometimes. God had let him be enslaved, and if you're a follower of God, you're thinking, yeah, you know, you didn't do it, but you could have stopped it. The natural response is anger with God. Maybe God is localized, maybe his powers are only good back in Palestine. But think about the purpose of Genesis. God is positioning Joseph to save a fledgling nation that will become his glory in the Old Testament during a famine. God is positioning Joseph to save the line of Christ who will rescue humanity. That's the plot here. Without Joseph's pain, we may not have Israel and we may not have Jesus. See, sometimes things aren't aren't as they seem. When your life is falling apart, when my life is falling apart, and it has at times, God is still at work. Not just in Joseph's life, but in your life as well. Second, Joseph began to appreciate God's sovereign hand in his life. Now, it, it took him a while. You know, he was a slave in Egypt. It took him a while. He wasn't saying, thank you, Jesus, right away. And it, and it takes us a while sometimes to see what God might be doing, but God was manipulating circumstances behind the scenes in ways that Joseph had not imagined. And even when things looked bleak, God was active. The lowest points in Joseph's life are laying a foundation for incredible good. And Joseph is starting to notice. Right before the famine, Joseph married a, married a priest's daughter preacher's kid and they had twins and in those days what you would do when you'd have kids you you would name them based on circumstances surrounding their birth remember Jacob and Esau Uh, Esau was he was red and he was hairy Esau means hairy his other name was red so people weren't that imaginative he's red and hairy we're going to name him hairy and a nickname red Joseph basically means supplanter. Somebody will try to get ahead of somebody else. You know why he was named that? Because when Esau came out first, Joseph was hanging onto his foot. You know, like trying to win the race, grab him back into mom and get out first. So they named him Jacob because that's what it means. So he has these two little kids by this preacher's daughter. Genesis 41, 51, and 52. Look at what he names those kids. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. In other words, now I just, I see things the way they are. I don't have to think about what happened to me, the whole selling into slavery. He named the second Ephraim, and he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
Now, just those, those names seem a little too long there. Here's what they mean. Forget and fruitful. He named his two kids Forget and Fruitful. How would you like to be Forget? You know, if mom and dad don't tell you why you were named Forget, you might take that personally. Like you're at the mall and they're going to forget you. He named them Forget and Fruitful. God has made me forget. God has made me fruitful. In other words, he's now seeing how God is working in his life, how God is enabling him to sort of overcome his past. And in a very, very, very real way, thanksgiving is starting to be born in his life as he sees that his life is is turning out better than he expected and that God has been with him all along. But now a greater test is coming because there's a famine to the northeast and his brothers are coming and the boys are coming back to town. Yeah, sorry. They really wanted to do that. So we let them. Just to see if some of you would be offended and need to find another church. All right. The third point, Joseph clearly understood God's purpose in his plan, or in his pain. Joseph clearly understood God's purpose in his pain, opening the door to forgiveness and thanksgiving. Now Joseph is coming full circle. Now it gets interesting. The famine is widespread. Jacob sends all, or Jacob, the father, sends all the brothers except Benjamin, which is actually Joseph's little brother by the favorite wife, Jacob sends all the brothers except Benjamin to get grain in Egypt. Now, they're coming to to Egypt, and Jacob is in charge of the whole system. Now, I don't think he's there necessarily dispensing, you know, every liter of grain. I, I don't believe that. But this is a foreign group coming in as a group, and he's probably summoned, so he recognizes them, but he makes sure that they don't recognize him. Now, a couple of things are going on here. He probably looked a little different as an Egyptian than he would have as a Jew, and so he's probably got a little different, you know, facial hair, haircut, all that kind of thing. Plus, he's a lot older. Teenagers don't look the same as 30, 35-year-old dudes. I mean, they're not. He recognizes them. He wants to make sure they don't recognize him. And truthfully, even though your Sunday school teacher may not have told you this, he completely messes with them. This is not a I forgive you, let's embrace situation. He completely messes with them in a way that I deeply admire. I mean, it's Revenge 101. I I can relate to this in my fantasies about my own enemies. He calls them spies. He accuses them of being spies coming into Egypt. And, And I kind of forgot about this while I was reading it through. He put them all in prison for three days. He, I mean, he imprisons his whole family. Anyone who came that's related to him, they're going to jail because he was in jail for a long time. So he gives them three days just so they get a taste of it. And then he lets them out. He says, you have to prove to me you're not spies. So he made them leave one of the brothers behind as a hostage until their word could be verified. And then when they're leaving, he put the money that they brought to buy grain back in their grain sacks to make it look like they're stealing as well. I mean, it is awesome. And then they can catch them later on. It's just awesome. Well, later on, they, you know, they go home. They determine, well, this was a mistake. We had to get this money back at some point when we go back, so save the money. 
They run out of the food. Dad says, you guys need to go back for some more. And so the plan is, okay, when we go back, we got to make sure we got money for new grain and we're bringing back the money that somehow, somehow we ended up with that we weren't supposed to end up with. And now we're going to be at his mercy because he knows. So they come back and, and, and they're at his mercy. And they could become slaves in Egypt, but they got to rescue their brother as well. And as they came the second time, and the story is a little longer than we have time for, when Joseph finally saw their hearts, how they were trying to, because he tried to mess with having the youngest son have to be left now and brought back, and when they saw how they were going to protect that young son, because how dad was still hurting from losing Joseph, he broke down. And he wept, and he revealed himself. And of course, they were absolutely terrified. But listen to what he says. Listen to the theological spin he puts on this. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. Really? Wow. Don't be upset with yourselves, you, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, there's still five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, to keep you alive by a great deliverance. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And he invited them to come and live there, all of them. Go tell dad, bring the whole clan, bring everything you have. Joseph is saying, God was in this all along. God didn't do it. God didn't do evil. He didn't sin. But God was in it all along. He saw what was going to happen. He manipulated the circumstances. And Joseph says to his brothers who sold him, I am here to preserve a remnant. And I get it now. It's the way our nation will survive. It's the way the line of Christ will survive. It's the way faith will survive on the earth. I've been put here for that. Come to Egypt and live. Wow. Joseph has really come full circle. He took a little time to mess with him, but he's come full circle. He's aware of God's plan, and he's thankful for it. And the glory that he now sees in what's going to happen outweighed the pain once he could look back on all of it and kind of understand what God might have been up to. Just a couple applications as we close. Thanksgiving is actually a command. It's actually God's will. actually stated that way in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, in everything give thanks. What does everything mean in the Greek? Everything. That's what it means in the Greek. And everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, that's tough. But God wants us to build habits in our lives where we recognize the good things in life no matter what's happening. German pastor Martin Rinkert served in the walled town of Eilenburg during the horrors of the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s. Eilenburg became an overcrowded refuge for the surrounding area. The fugitives suffered from epidemic and famine. At the beginning of 1637, the year of the Great Pestilence, there were four ministers in Eilenburg. One abandoned his post for healthier areas. Pastor Rinkert officiated at the funerals of the other two. 
As the only pastor left in that town, he conducted services for as many as 40 to 50 people a day, almost 4,500 in all. In May of that year, he buried his wife. By the end of the year, the refugees had to be buried in trenches without services. Yet living in a world dominated by death, he wrote the following prayer for his children to offer to the Lord, the children who had lost their mother. He wrote this prayer for them. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. That takes some spiritual testicular fortitude to write something like that in the middle of an absolute pestilence and crisis, but to lead his family to somehow thank God. Thanksgiving recognizes God's control over all things. Joseph's view, God did this. Did God do it? No, God didn't do it. His brothers did it. But Joseph had enough high, a high enough view of God to recognize, yeah, my brothers were bad. But as a follower of God, I believe God always has a say. God always has a say in my life. If something bad happens, he might not have done it, but he had a say. He had a say. And Joseph viewed it that way. God had a say. And so God did this because now I see that God is using me to rescue our family, our clan, the line of Christ. Next, it's often easier after life gets harder. See, so what do you mean by that? What I mean is, sometimes we have to kind of go low before we can kind of be elevated in this virtue. The Hope Health Letter included this story, true story, once upon a time, there was a man who lived with his wife, two small children, and his elderly parents in a tiny hut. He tried to be patient and gracious, but the noise and crowded conditions wore him down. In desperation, he consulted the village wise man. Do you have a rooster? asked the man. Yes. Keep the rooster in the hut with your family and come see me again in a week. The next week, the man returned and told the wise elder that living conditions were worse than ever. The rooster's crowing and making a mess in the hut. Do you have a cow? asked the wise man. Yeah, take your cow into the hut as well and come see me in a week. Over the next several weeks, the man, on the advice of the wise village elder, made room for a goat, two dogs, and his brother's children. Finally, he could take no more, and in a fit of rage, he kicked all the animals and guests out of his house, leaving only his wife and his children and his parents. And the home suddenly became spacious and quiet, and everyone lived happily ever after. That's some deep theology there. You see, expectation inflation in our lives erodes thanksgiving. The more we expect out of life, the more we feel we have to have it or we don't have a life that compares with other people's, the more we compare our lives with other people's, the more we cannot be thankful. This expectation inflation wrecks us and sometimes God allows us to take a few hits and what it does is it gives us an expectation reset when your health has been taken from you or your 
maybe terminal with some form of cancer, even if you're older and you're thinking you've lived a long life, every day becomes more precious, doesn't it? Every day becomes more precious when you don't know if you're going to have it tomorrow. You know, when you get in a terrible accident and the doctor says you're not going to walk again, when you can walk, every day is better than it would have been had you never been in the accident. doesn't mean God put you in the accident, but God uses these things to create this expectation reset. It's exactly what happened to Joseph. It's what happens to us. And finally, the things that are hardest to be thankful for often change us the most, which is a cause for thanksgiving. I think a lot of us have experiences in life. I know I do, but the service has to end soon, so I won't get into mine. But it's, the short version would be it's how I got to Canada. I'm not particularly, not particularly thankful for it. And I feel like I've got enemies. But the reality is, I also would say that month by month and year by year, I'm starting to see that God may have had a hand in it. I'm a little slow. But I can see that God could have had a hand in that. But I wouldn't have said that four years ago. We all have situations like that in our lives that God wants to use to bring us to a point of thankfulness and appreciation for his total control of our lives and the future. God, we thank you for this life of Joseph and the story that, a true story, that teaches us so much about your work behind the scenes in his life and about your work behind the scenes in, in our lives. And I pray that we would respond like Joseph. We naturally respond like he did at first. We're kind of full of vengeance over the things that have happened to us and maybe we don't understand what you're up to, but eventually when it becomes clearer, we begin to be thankful for difficult experiences when, when we can see that you, you've had your hand in our life all along. I pray that you would help us to get to that point. And I'm sure in this room there are Many, many different kinds of heartache and many people on a variety of places in that journey. But I pray that each of us would take a step towards understanding what you might be doing in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.